This is indeed Talk the Talk. Welcome to the show. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we are joined today by State Representative Mindy Dom, the representative for the 3rd Hampshire District. That's Amherst, Pelham. And, and am I missing a municipality there, Representative? Mindy Dom? Um, can you hear me, Bill? There we go. Yes. Representative okay. for Amherst, Pelham. Anyone anywhere else? Well, I don't represent Pelham anymore. As oh, January, not Pelham. Pelham is in the 7th Hampton. I still represent half of Granby. Ah. So I represent the full town of Amherst and precincts 1 and 2A in Granby. I'm sorry. And I'm sorry for Pelham, too, but I'm sure that they have landed in a good place. Um, they have. So, Representative Mindy Dom, I'd like to ask you about the headline in today's Daily Hampshire Gazette, Municipalities Pitch for Voting Rights. At hearing, residents push legislature to okay non-citizen and ranked choice voting. This is a story about home rule petitions for both Northampton and Amherst. As I understand it, Northampton and Amherst both have home rule petitions asking for ranked choice voting and asking for non-citizens to be able to vote as well. Again, up to the, the municipality to decide that. Northampton has a home rule petition asking for 16 and 17 year olds to be permitted to vote in municipal elections as well. You are quoted at some length in this article. Why don't you tell us what's happening in the legislature and what your position is, please? Representative Dom. Sure. Thank you, Bill. And thank you again for having me on this monthly segment. Um, so Amherst has a home rule petition that we submitted last session to allow it to pursue ranked choice voting in local elections. And last session, um, it was advanced from the committee, but with no time for us to vote on it. So this session, it had to be refiled, which it was, and it comes before the election laws committee. And they scheduled it, as you mentioned, this week for a hearing, which was great because an early hearing means that we have more time to work this bill and advocate for its enactment so that Amherst can pursue what it wants to pursue, which is ranked choice voting in local elections. Um, you know, I'm, people have asked me, am I hopeful? Do I think it will happen? I, well, first of all, I am an optimistic person, and I'm always going to be hopeful, especially when legislation was advanced favorably just, you know, like a year ago. Could you stop um, right there for one second? When you say sure. advanced favorably, what does that mean? Okay, so thank you. So the legislative journey, I've equated it maybe on this show to like, you know, shoots and ladders, the, the board game. There's a lot of uh, different stops and destinations and twists and turns that a bill has to go to through before it comes to the body for a vote. And that vote allows it to move on to become law. And one of those destinations is the committee. So when a bill gets filed, it gets a number, the clerk is like a traffic cop, and it directs different bills to different committees. The committees then get a list of bills that they have to look at. In Massachusetts, every bill gets a public hearing. So there are over 6,000 bills filed. Each one gets a public hearing. This is within the two-year session. And then after the public hearing, the committee gets to decide if the bill advances favorably or not. If it advances favorably, it usually goes to House Ways and Means, and that means it's another stop on that legislative journey. Or it could be put to study, which basically means the committee feels it needs more time, more research, and more 
investigation, and then it stops. It, oh, okay. Let, some let's, people say it dies. Oh, it, yeah, yeah. Right. going to study is just a uh, euphemism for killing the bill for at least the time being, I think. I, but I would yes. like to know this. When you say advance, the bill advances, that means it comes out of the committee to which it was assigned and then goes to Ways and Means. Is that a correct understanding? That's exactly right. Exactly right. And Ways and Means in the House is, is sort of like the um, the prioritizer in terms of what bills are going to be released for the body to vote on in formal session. And home rules like this need to be voted on in formal session um, because we're not sure if there will be a person who will oppose it. And you can't bring anything into informal session if there's going to be an opponent. Okay. Let's talk about the two home rule petitions that are in front of which committee is it now? Uh, it's election laws. The elections laws committee. Election laws. Okay. So the Amherst has two home rules. One would allow it to pursue ranked choice voting. Um, and the, this comes after the town set up a commission to study ranked choice voting and to make recommendations on how it would proceed. That study came to the town council, I think, in November or December of 2020. And they immediately followed up with a home rule for me to file that would allow them to implement ranked choice voting. And we filed that, I believe, in January of 21. Um, and then it came out of committee favorably. So the committee said, yes, we think this is a good bill. We're going to advance it to House Ways and Means the last day of last session. So that gave no opportunity for it to be voted on in formal session. But the precedent was set that the committee vetted it, investigated it, checked it out, had a hearing, and decided to advance it favorably. And the chairman of the committee at that time is the chairman of, in this session. So that's a, that's a good sign. The other bill is the home rule that Amherst wanted to allow for non-citizens to vote in local elections. And so we filed that home rule for them this session when they gave us the home rule. And so that also got a hearing this past week. There has, has there been a vote yet on the from the Elections Commission on whether to advance the bill to Ways and Means? No, not? and there won't. There probably won't be right away. They had many bills on that um, on their agenda this past week, so they heard the public. Now they have to study the bills, and now that also gives us an opportunity as legislators to continue to meet with the chairs, which I've already done, um, to discuss the importance of these bills to my community. Um, and hopefully we'll get a decision from the committee um, sometime this summer or fall, and hopefully it will be a favorable decision. And then we can pick up the bill in the next destination on its journey and keep pushing for it to come to the floor this session. Representative Dom, we often hear the adage that the states are the laboratories of democracy for the country. And in the same way, municipalities are the laboratories of democracy for the state. And what I don't really understand is why it is so difficult to advance and to pass a home rule petition. If a local municipality wants to try something, uh, if it is without harm to the rest of the state, what's the opposition well, I don't know if it's so much that there's opposition as much as that they need to get permission. Like the Constitution in Massachusetts requires municipalities to get permission to do certain kinds of actions, and elections are one of those kinds of things. Um, and so it's, you know, 
it is hard. I think it's, on the other hand, I think it is kind of challenging to get ranked choice voting out. But remember, this ranked choice voting home rule was submitted immediately following a statewide referendum that turned down ranked choice voting. So the legislature looks at like the statewide referendum where the voters said, no, we don't want it. And now maybe that gives them a little bit of pause to think about, you know, even though a municipality might have supported it, like Amherst on the statewide referendum, they're also looking at the precedent of establishing something that throughout the state voters have said no to. So I guess ranked choice voting may be a little bit more complicated because of that statewide referendum and the fact that it went down. But again, the town of Amherst supported the referendum, and that's part of my argument is that my town voted for it. Um, in the statewide question, and they want to pursue it. Was the state and, was the state referendum for st- state offices? Yes, it was for it was for elections across the board. So you know, it's um, my feeling on home rules bill is that I don't actually have a choice. If my towns want a home rule, and they are, and they go through the process of doing that, which would require their government to you know pass a resolution. They have, to, they have There's a lot of work on their part. They have to develop the legislation. If they come to me with a home rule, I feel obliged in my role as a representative to file it for them. Now, that goes for every home rule I could think of, except, for example, if somebody, if a town was looking for a home rule that was in direct conflict with a position that I've taken that my constituents know that I've taken. Um, I don't imagine what that might be, but assuming that no home rule would conflict with me like that, I I feel like it's my obligation to file them and advocate for them. And you, in fact, do personally support this ranked choice voting for Amherst. Yes. Yes. Let me ask you about one other aspect of your uh, legislative uh, endeavors, because the Gazette says this, and I would appreciate knowing whether, well, I'd appreciate knowing not only your position, but what you think the prospects are. Gazette says this, uh, Dom spoke about the need for ranked choice voting as well as opening up voting to non-citizens who live in Amherst, such as some international students at the University of Massachusetts who are raising their families in town. Quote, we have a lot of folks who are non-citizens in the town of Amherst, Dom said, adding that they have a lot at of stake in town decisions. Quote, I'm thrilled the town council passed this initiative and is seeking home rule support for it. I suspect that the question of non-citizens voting in uh, municipal election raises as many questions and issues as 16 and 17-year-olds voting. And I'm wondering what kind of a reception this aspect or this home rule from Amherst is receiving. What's, what's, what's been the- I, I think non-citizen voting is very challenging in the legislature. Remember, we don't even give um, undocumented students um, in-state tuition in Massachusetts, even though they may have lived there here their whole life, they've graduated from Massachusetts high schools, et cetera. Um, I think it's more challenging, but I think the home rule and the fact that there are other towns that also have this as a home rule indicate that there's local, there's a groundswell of local support for it. So even if that particular one doesn't cross the finish line, um, in this session or possibly next session or in future sessions, I think it's an important signal and expression of support for our immigrant neighbors that we see them as equals in our community. 
Um, and this, again, is just for local elections. It's like for town council and school committee. Um, and it's a way to say you have you're welcome here. We, we value you. You have great contributions to our community. And we, we welcome you to take on the responsibility of voting. You know, on the 16 and 17 year old voting, Amherst does not have a home rule on that. Um, I support. 16-year-olds voting in and 17-year-olds voting in local elections. And I was persuaded during my campaign by a grandmother who I met during a house party who told me that she thought voting should be handled like driving. And she said, you know, local elections, 16-year-olds should vote. State elections, 17-year-olds should vote. And then they graduate at 18 to vote in federal elections. And that actually made a lot of sense to me since we know voting is a behavior and it's habitual. And the more you do it, the more you do it is to start 16 year olds at the very local level where they can see the direct impact of a lot of their votes on school committees and select boards or town councils um, and then work our way up. I also feel it's a really good way to make sure that adults address issues like climate um, change and other issues that are of great concern to young people. Um, but I have not filed a home rule on that. Amherst has not passed one, but I would support it if um, it came up. And if it came up statewide, I definitely would support it. Representative Dom, I'd like to go back to the question of non-citizen voting for just a moment and mm-hmm. ask whether or not there has been a distinction raised in terms of uh your fellow legislators who may not be supportive of this idea, if there's a distinction raised between uh, non-citizens who uh, are here with documents and those who are not, because you specifically are quoted with regard to non-citizens who are, for example, students, graduate students at UMass Amherst. Mm -hmm. Is there a distinction? I haven't heard that distinction from other people, and um, the I know the Gazette clipped my quote at that point, but we also, I just want to really point out that in Amherst, we have a lot of immigrant neighbors who are not affiliated with the university or the college. Um, they live, you know, in Amherst because they love living in Amherst, like many of us do, or maybe they moved here because after Hurricane Maria, they had family here, and so... Um, this is where they sought refuge and, you know, kind of sanctuary in that way. But I think my point to the Gazette when I was talking was that Amherst has a large immigrant community. It's not always viewed that way. And we need to really sort of take a, assess, assess who's in our community, what is our voting like, what is our turnout rates, and how can we engage, you know, folks who live here to have be able to have more of a say in what happens to them when they live in the town. And so I think, although I really appreciate the Gazette's coverage of it, I don't want that quote in, that they clipped of mine to make people think that the only immigrants we have in Amherst that would be eligible for this are people who are on student visas and are graduates um, or graduate students. Um, they're not the only people that live in our community who are immigrants. We have many. I really appreciate that clarification. We are speaking with State Representative Mindy Dom. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. More from the representative after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP.
What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Do you know what's going on in business in Western Mass? You do if you read Business West. Find out which companies are growing, which companies are innovating. Learn about people on the move, people taking the lead. Every issue of Business West is packed with business news, including incorporations, building permits, real estate transactions, and bankruptcies. Pick up a copy or read Business West online. The vital business news is in Business West, the business journal of Western Mass. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton, where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. Do you love books? You'll love Broadside Bookshop. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand. I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with State Representative Mindy Dom. Uh, Representative, I'd like to turn to a couple of other legislative matters that I know you're involved in, the Healthy Youth Act and some Mm -hmm. health, the health and sexuality uh, frameworks, I take it, for our schools. So you want to talk to us about those two, two matters, please? Sure. Thank you, Bill. We had some very exciting news this week. The governor, Governor Healy, announced that her Department of Elementary and Secondary Education was releasing some draft curriculum frameworks for health and sexuality education. The first time these frameworks have been updated in, brace yourself, 25 years. Mm. Um, And this is huge. So there have been a couple of bills knocking around the legislature. One's called the Healthy Youth Act. Um, That's been filed by Rep. Jim O'Day. Another bill filed by Rep. Marjorie Decker also tackles this issue. Um, And this is, like, critically important. What's the issue? The issue is is that the information and the education that our students are getting is outdated, sometimes medically inaccurate, not always age-appropriate, and sometimes not inclusive. And by inclusive, we mean including LGBTQ plus communities. And this bill has been around for like at least 10 years. So that's how long the legislature has been trying to push this legislation through to require the bare minimum that just health education that our kids get in school has to be medically accurate, no brainer, inclusive and age appropriate. And we haven't been able to get it over the finish line. The governor, she came in in January. 
Um, apparently, Desi had been looking at this. She said, let's get it done. And in six months, they came out with new curriculum frameworks. I am so psyched. I know that my constituents are going to be thrilled because this is an issue that people have talked to me about. This is an issue I've been working on even before I was a representative, both professionally and as a parent. Um, it doesn't help our students to be able to take care of themselves and keep themselves and their friends safe by not getting in accurate information. We need to make sure that Massachusetts students know how to keep themselves safe. And we need to make sure that in Massachusetts, we not only say gay, we're going to help LGBTQ <coughs> plus kids learn how to take care of themselves and be safe. Now, these frameworks deal with a range of topics, substance use and misuse, nutrition, physical fitness, as well as sexuality, gender, sexual health. Um, it's not just one thing, and it's not just one way of approaching that one thing. It's age-appropriate. That means that what you tell a kindergarten about how to take care of their body is going to be different <laughs> than what you tell a 16-year-old about how to take care of the body because the context for their behavior is different and their access to behavior is different. Represent, yes. Representative Dom, uh, excuse, yep. excuse, excuse my ignorance Please. on part of this, but why is this matter in front of the legislature? Why hasn't the Department of, of Elementary and Secondary Education taken care of this years ago? Well, that's a good question. I can't really speak for why they haven't done it, except that I know that the previous governor, Governor Baker, was not a big uh, supporter of it. But at Governor Healy's press conference this week, she talked about how Desi has been working on this for quite a while, indicating that it predated her tenure, but it was her tenure that got this across. So if I can just take a moment and just tell people what the process is, because there's a way for people to participate. Next week, and I'll be posting this on my social media so people know, but next week, the Board of Elementary and Secondary Education will receive these draft frameworks, which are available, you can read them, and they will decide to move forward. And when they decide to move forward, they will hold public hearings this summer on these new proposed frameworks. And they will use those public hearings as a basis for their vote on whether or not to approve the frameworks. And that vote will happen sometime in the fall. And the reason why I think this is really important to talk about is because the summer is a time when families go away and they're not checked in to what's going on with their school we have to make sure that people who support these frameworks speak up because we don't know people who don't support them might. Um, and we need to really make sure that in the public comment period that the board is hearing from parents and educators and medical providers and healthcare folks about the importance of making sure um, that our kids get accurate information in school. Representative Dom, would these frameworks apply to health classes, to other curriculum, to extracurricular activities? How do the frameworks, how are they incorporated into the school day or, the, or what a school or our schools are teaching? Such a good question, Bill. My understanding is, and I hope I'm right about this, that it's the frameworks for the health classes that are currently part of the curriculum in Massachusetts. Um, and school districts get to decide how they implement them. So it's not like a requirement that you have to do A, B, and C. It's here's what the frameworks are and what the goals are, how you reach those goals 
will be up to the individual districts. So the the bills that were kicking around the legislature that I referred to, one is called the Healthy Youth Act, and that would require any school district that has health education to make sure that it's medically accurate, inclusive, and age appropriate. The other bill that I that I mentioned that's filed by Rep. Marjorie Decker from Cambridge requires this education to happen in every school. And quite frankly, I support that. I don't think it should matter. Um, your zip code should determine whether or not you find out how to take care of your body in Massachusetts. I think that's information that every student should have accessible to them. We're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with State Representative Mindy Dom. We really appreciate it. But, but before you go, let me ask you, you, you are having two constituents who are going to be receiving some recognition. Do you want to take half a minute and tell us about that, Representative? I would love to take a half a minute. I could take a whole other 30 minutes on this. I am in the car right now with Anika Lopes and Deborah Bridges, residents of Amherst. And Senator Joe Comerford and I are honoring them today, along with women across the Commonwealth, with the 2023 Commonwealth Heroine Award. And this is an award that's presented by the Massachusetts Commission on the Status of Women. Legislators get an opportunity to nominate um, someone from their district. And Senator Comerford and I are nominating what I think might be the first mother-daughter duo um, for their incredible work in making sure that Amherst's African-American history is known by everyone and shared so that we can move forward together. And I'm so excited to be bringing them to the State House for this. This is Deborah Bridges and Annika yes. Lopes? Annika Lopes, Annika yes. Lopes. Well, thank you for sponsoring that, and thank you and Joe Comerford for making sure they receive the recognition they are due and for their contributions to the community. Thank you so much, Representative Mindy Dom, for being with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I'll, I'll see you next month. <laughs> You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The investigation into alleged mistreatment of trans students at Amherst Regional Middle School is ongoing. The school committee met earlier this week to give an update on the Title IX complaint and investigation into actions by middle school counselors earlier this year. The committee voted to release a statement affirming their commitment to LGBTQA students and the community. The statement comes as Superintendent Michael Morris is on medical leave, with Douglas Slaughter serving as temporary superintendent. Dorian Cunningham, the Assistant Superintendent of Diversity, Equity, and Human Resources, who led the hiring process for the counselors, was placed on leave. Investigations are expected to be completed by the end of August. Civilians will now be allowed to help monitor traffic during construction in East Hampton. DPW Director Greg Nettleman spoke at Wednesday's City Council meeting, saying work has had to be delayed or rescheduled due to a shortage of police officers available to direct traffic. Police Chief Robert Alberti drafted an ordinance which was approved by council that provides a job description of the role, which includes directing vehicular and pedestrian traffic through construction zones, reporting disobedient drivers, and answering motorist questions. Mayor Nicola Chappelle said the ordinance makes good sense for public safety and project management. The UPS store on Pleasant Street in Northampton got a surprise yesterday afternoon when a vehicle drove into the building, smashing out a window. The incident happened shortly after noon. 
No injuries or significant damage was reported, but customers who needed services inside the store were directed to the Amherst location. Good Friday morning. I'm 20 News Storm Team Meteorologist Chris Bazak. It's going to be seeing the chance for some spot pop-up showers and even a rumble of thunder as we go through late this morning and into the afternoon. High temperatures getting into the 80s for today. We'll stay up to date with the latest forecast on 101.5 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Ansiosos por acusar al presidente Joe Biden, los republicanos de la Cámara de Representantes de Extrema Derecha forzaron una votación el jueves que envió el asunto a los comités del Congreso en una clara demostración del desafío que enfrenta el presidente Kevin McCarthy para controlar el partido mayoritario. La capacidad de un solo legislador en la Cámara de 435 miembros para impulsar una resolución de juicio político esta semana tomó a los republicanos con la guardia baja y muchos de ellos lo vieron como una distracción de otras prioridades. La medida acusa a Biden de crímenes y delitos menores por su manejo de la frontera de Estados Unidos con México. La representante Lauren Bobert, respaldada por aliados, pudo usar las reglas de la Cámara para forzar una votación anticipada sobre un asunto constitucional tan grave. La votación de 219 a 208 en la línea del partido envió su resolución a los comités para su posible consideración como cualquier otro proyecto de ley. No tienen ninguna obligación de hacer nada. Los conservadores dijeron que más votos de este tipo están por venir. En otras informaciones, hace un año el sábado, la Corte Suprema de los Estados Unidos rescindió un derecho al aborto de cinco décadas de antigüedad, lo que provocó un cambio radical en los debates sobre política, valores, libertad y justicia. 25 millones de mujeres en edad fértil ahora viven en estados donde la ley hace que el aborto sea más difícil de lo que era antes del fallo. Las decisiones sobre la ley están en gran medida en manos de los legisladores y tribunales estatales. La mayoría de los estados liderados por republicanos han restringido el aborto. 14 prohíben el aborto en la mayoría de los casos en cualquier momento del embarazo. 20 estados de tendencia demócrata han protegido el acceso al aborto. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. And this is our weekly time with Max Page, who is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. Max, we were just talking with Representative Mindy Dom about the Healthy Youth Act and the health and sexuality frameworks, and I would appreciate it if you would share with us what the Massachusetts Teachers Association's position is with regard to those legislative initiatives. Sure. Well, thank you, Bill. Uh, yes, we I was standing right behind the governor uh, alongside our state rep, Mindy Dom, who's been an important player in advancing new health um, frameworks. The last comprehensive overhaul of these health frameworks for public schools was 1999, and things have changed since then. The things we care about, the obstacles, the challenges students face, the way we look at uh, issues such as gender and sexuality, have changed, I would say, in some ways, really developed positively. So this is um, updating those frameworks. So there's lots of more that will be in there about, about LGBTQ issues and how we educate students around those issues. There's lots more about mental health, about physical education and 
I just think it's, uh, you know, we're, we're going to go through line by line and offer our comments. This, these frameworks are now going to be open for 60 day public comment and no doubt we in the MTA will have specific, you know, concerns or things we want to change, but we wanted to stand behind the governor um, right from the start on updating this because she as the governor, but also we in Massachusetts will be under attack from the right wing for actually respecting um, the health and mental lives of our children from the, the national media. Which raises the question for me whether the governor and whether supporters of this bill anticipate there'll be some kind of a legal challenge from the right saying, we don't want our kids to know about those things. Well, so there's two things. There is the bill, of course, that Rep. Dom has been pushing, but with these frameworks are um, are not, uh, they're not a bill. They are frameworks to guide what happens in our public schools. So whatever happens to the bill, hopefully these frameworks, however they're uh, adjusted, will go out and help guide locals. And um, lo our locals, our local members, educators of the Mass Teachers Association, and school districts. So um, th th there can't be just be a simple roadblock to this effort. And I think uh, these these health framework guidelines frameworks will will really help us think about how we educate our kids about their own health and mental, physical health, physical education. And the frameworks will provide guidance, significant guidance to local school departments and school committees on how to approach the teaching of health and sexuality in the schools, yes? Exactly, they are frameworks. They are not like, they're not um, curriculum requirements. They are um, the, the guidelines. And so then, then it's up to us as educators and as school districts to figure out how to, how, which of these frameworks, hopefully most of them, we really embrace and how to um, incorporate those into the school curriculum. So, Max Page, I'd like to turn our attention to two matters before the United States Supreme Court, which we may have answers from the court uh, today. We may not have them till next week, but whatever the decisions are, they are going to be momentous and crucial to the educational systems in the country and here in particular in Western Massachusetts, one having to do with uh, affirmative action and consideration whether race can be a consideration in admissions, and the second case, whether or not the Biden administration's attempt to forgive student debt or some student debt will be struck down by the Supreme Court. So in whatever or whichever order you'd like to take them, I'd appreciate your perspective or the perspective of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. Max Page? Sure. Thank you, Bill. Yes, and just as a reminder to everyone that uh, the decisions have to be, be rendered, I believe, you tell me, but I believe by the end of June, all their uh, decisions, and that's why they seem to be releasing them Thursday and Friday, and of course, next Thursday and Friday, the end of end of June. So, and we may find out uh, <laughs> in the middle of your show at, at 10 a.m. what issues come up. Okay, so the first one is a, getting a lot of publicity. It's actually two cases, one against Harvard University and then Frankly, for me, more troubling even is the one against the University of North Carolina, a public university. Uh, um, and this is about can they use race as a consideration as a, as a, in decisions about admissions? And um, of course, we stand firmly on the side of 
It must be. It is crucial to the educational mission of the institutions and of and for the broader common good to consider diversity and encourage that in our in our public colleges and universities. Unfortunately, we are anticipating um, a bad decision based on this court and who they are and the kind of arguments that they they made. We, we may be surprised and it may be sort of more complicated than simply eliminating um, the use of race in admissions, but we're preparing for the worst. And I will say we actually uh, are pleased that the governor has already set up an advisory council to how do we maintain diversity in our public and private colleges, and we're going to be a part of that. And I think they're ready to get into action the moment the decision comes down. We, of course, will also be not only speaking out against a bad decision, but we also have a policy program ready to go that does not solve a bad decision, but actually can can assist, and that's the Cherish Act. And that will provide universal debt-free public higher education for every resident of the Commonwealth. And what that does, what that will help to do is give greater access to students of color, working class students. So it will at least has the potential to ameliorate the worst impacts of this decision. Max, aside from the injustice involved, the reason why race should be a factor in admissions, as an educator, can you just tell listeners, I, I, I've been in a classroom, what happens in the classroom? Why is it better to have a diverse classroom? We live in a diverse country. One of the most fundamental parts of being in a democracy that is as diverse as ours is to learn how to work with other people, learn not only just learn how to resolve conflicts, or but learn the value of other people's histories, cultures, traditions. And that happens slowly and steadily and first foundationally in our public schools and colleges. And it's been shown over and over again the value of people of different backgrounds, races, ethnicities, religions, interacting with one another. And whatever the the MAGA Republicans think, this nation is going to become and is thankfully going to become a more diverse country. And so we need to both not just live with it, we need to celebrate that. And that starts in our schools and colleges. And frankly, we in Massachusetts, you know, it's a, still a very white state in many parts of the state. Many of our schools are far too, um, you know, limited in their diversity, both among educators and w as well among students. And this decision, if it goes down the way we expect it, will just make things worse. So we're going to have to redouble our efforts to maintain and expand diversity in our public colleges and universities in any way we can do that. Max, take a minute or two and tell us about the case that is challenging the Biden administration's attempt to forgive some of the onerous student debt that has been accumulated over the years. Sure. So, so President Biden made a very important decision to forgive um, $10,000 of uh, federal student debt and actually more for um, even lower income students. and. It made that decision as many previous presidents have done to to erase certain debts. It's happened multiple times under multiple presidents. So I, we believe it is absolutely lawful. Um, it, that burden of debt falls, of course, on working class students. That's the definition of federal student aid is, is it goes to uh, middle and lower income students, but it also fo follows falls much more heavily on students of color because 
because of our longstanding history, families of color have less wealth to rely on to send their kids to college. And so um, this decision we think would be disastrous. And we, you know, I have a vain hope that maybe the Supreme Court will respect that this is a, this is a, been, uh, a, this is a decision that the president can take. Otherwise, we're gonna, again, have to find other ways to relieve that student debt and stop the future accumulation of debt that burdens our students. Although this is a federal program, it seems that debt relief is going to have to come from the federal government, and this is a Supreme Court that's apt to say, oh, no, Congress didn't specifically absolutely authorize this and didn't, even though it's generally covered, and therefore the president can't do it. That's the argument. Yeah, but I will say, Bill, I think a lot will have to come back to the states, and in fact, I'm very pleased that Hopefully next week, we'll maybe be able to talk about it on the show soon after, uh, we'll be announcing with the governor a new program that was funded in last year's budget to provide complete debt relief to recent public school educators. People who recently started as public school educators will be able to get their debt uh, removed by the state. So there are real possibilities within our own state to help with this issue. On that, on that positive note, we will leave it. Max Page is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. Thank you so much for your time and insights, Max. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Bill and Buzz. Have a great weekend. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Go out to eat, save 30%. Get a guitar or take lessons, save 30%. Pork chops, rug cleaning, hypnotherapy, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were going to buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. What's new at the Waitley Inn? Everything. The Waitley Inn has undergone a stunning transformation with a fresh new look inside and a beautiful wraparound porch with great views and expanded parking area. The only thing that hasn't changed is the menu, offering classic New England fare the Waitley Inn has become famous for. The Waitley Inn is open Wednesday through Saturday starting at 4 p.m. and Sunday from 1 to 7. Pickup is also available with easy online ordering. Visit WaitleyInn.com. Eat greatly at the Waitley. The 4th of July sales event is on at Leah Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram. New 2023 Ram 1500 Bighorn Crew Cab. Get up to $10,000 off MSRP or lease for only $439 a month. Visit General Manager Nick Kane and take up to $10,000 off MSRP on a new Ram 1500. Now at Leah Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram on King Street in Northampton. Leah. Dodge number 230173, 42-month lease, 19,000 miles, 43.99 cash down plus tax and fees, plus credit qualified through Chrysler Capital, and 7523. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits. The beat goes on. The 
And this is Artbeat with Donabel Cassis, who has with her and us today a very special guest. Donabel Cassis, our Artbeat segment host. The microphone is yours. Thank you, Bill. Good morning. If you haven't been to the Berkshires for Wham Theater's seasonal play reading <laughs> festival, you are missing out because. Yes, we have Talia, Kil- Kin- yeah, Talia Kingston here today to speak about it. Now, if you haven't heard about Wham Theater, it is a 14-year-old professional theater company that operates at the intersection of arts and activism with an emphasis on gender equity and creating opportunities for women and girls. Talia Kingston, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Now, this is your ninth annual Fresh Takes Play Reading Festival, which is tell us a little bit about, first of all, what WAM is and what WAM stands for. Yeah, WAM, as you said, is a place where um, arts and activism meet, and we do that by centering the voices and stories of women and girls, and also producing plays that have um, some kind of interesting social question or message within them um, and then igniting conversation and connecting those plays with uh, local grassroots organizations to either raise funds or amplify their work on the ground uh, making the world better for women and girls. Um, We've been doing this for 14 years Uh, we just came off a I have to pitch this sorry but we just came off a sold out run of Heidi Schreck incredible what the constitution means to me uh, uh, which we co-produced with Berkshire Theatre Group in Stockbridge and uh, that one uh, we connected with the Elizabeth Freeman Centre which is a domestic violence centre in um, in the Berkshires and so we were able to take people's um, enthusiasm and excitement as they came out of the play and really channel it into on the ground work and for and real funds to help that vital service continue so that's well, the kind of work we do yeah, yes, yes, yes. Well, that well, I do love that the WAM has a philanthropic mission where you donate a portion of the proceeds to local organizations uh, that take action for gender equity. And SITE is very specific with this upcoming play series. It's happening at the Mount in Lenox in three consecutive Sundays. Tell us about the Mount. The Mount is Edith Wharton's home. Uh, Edith Wharton, obviously the famous author. And so it's really wonderful to be uh, collaborating with them again. We have um, produced our plays, readings at their, in their stables theatre. It's a beautiful, um, very intimate space that people can really sit down and be in the same room as the actors and really hear the words. But as, um, as a woman writer myself, we're producing three um, contemporary plays by women writers in the home of a famous woman writer and it really feels like it's connected in a beautiful way um hopefully people can have a lovely day out there and explore the grounds and the house i was there the other day they have a great sculpture exhibit outside as well that you can walk through and then come and listen to a play it's it's a gorgeous sight and you know edith wharton was famous for writing plays to subvert stereotypes. And I really believe that, you know, that site is just such a significant space for these works. So tell us about these three Sundays in July. When do they start and what can we look forward to? 
Yeah, thank you. So three plays. We're starting with Hollow Roots by Christina Anderson. Christina Anderson is really one of the um, most dynamic and exciting voices in American theatre today. She's winning all sorts of awards for her plays. Uh, Hollow Roots is a, is a solo play, a political, med uh, political, it is political as well, poetic is what I meant to say, meditation on um, on what it means to be a black woman um, in America today. And it actually takes place specifically just after Obama got elected. So at, at the time people were saying, um, well, that's great, we've won racism. Uh, we've got over that. <laughs> yeah. What does it mean to be colorblind? What does it mean to, um, to walk in that world? This particular poetic play is being performed by, by Nyairi Poole, um, who's a Shakespeare and Company actor and it she'll be accompanied on stage by live uh, live mu music so there'll be a, an interplay between a cellist and her throughout the whole piece i think it's going to be really beautiful um and not to be so that's what opens it so that's sunday J july 16th at 2 p.m then we move on to a play that actually i wrote <laughs> i know i'm excited about this one yeah, it's a it's a play. This one takes place in the early days of the um, Trump administration, um, in the back offices of the of a the Homeland Security office in um, a small New England airport where a Muslim graduate student is being held because her visa that where she when she set off her visa was valid when she landed her visa was not valid anymore because. Um, the so called Muslim ban came into effect, so it takes place in that moment. Um, and then the final one, Jessica Kokoska uh, has written a play called In Her Bones, which I've been thrilled about since before the pandemic, which uh, takes place in rural Colorado in a gas station where um, a group of um, of uh, the Mexican community is exploring like Jewish roots that they have because they have been, it turns out that they are descendants from the Spanish Inquisition. So there's all this kind of um, very present uh, drama of being in, the, in a gas station in the middle of a snowstorm and also like exploration of their ancestral roots. So all three plays taken together are all about identity. Um, but I mean, they really, really fascinating stories. I mean, <laughs> these are stories written by women who really talk about you're right, the identities, pe what people project onto us, uh, the ones that we inherit that are handed down to us and the ones we decide to take on for ourselves. And I know that there's a play series pass that you can get yeah. so that you can see all three of them, which I think you really should. How do people get those? So if you just go onto our website, it's whamtheatre.com, uh, that's W-A-M, and then theatre spelt with the R and R-E, the British way, uh, dot, dot com, they have all, a lot more information about the actors, about the playwrights, about the plays, and also you can buy either single tickets or a play pass for all three consecutive Sundays. Um, Every, I should say that every play reading is followed by a conversation with the artist. So you'll get to chat to the actors, the playwrights, the um, musicians. Uh, I was just going to ask you about that because that's yeah. really an exciting part about the play development and you know conversation. Absolutely, and the last two plays, my play and Jessica's play, we are and the final stage of developing them. Um, they're hopefully going to be in full production next year, but it means that the audiences, what the audiences say and how they respond is really going to be integrated into what these plays become. So you have a real stake in the development of the work. Now, can, can oh, you tell no, us where the theater is? I want to make sure I know where I'm going. 
Yes, uh, it's the mount, it's in Lennox. Uh, so if you just go, if you put the mount in Lennox on, in your GPS, you'll be able to get to it, but it's right, um, it's in Lennox, Massachusetts. Our theater, we have a beautiful office space in downtown Lennox, but we deliberately don't have our own performing spaces because we connect each play to a space that works and a community that works. And so we really move around the Berkshires in terms of our performances. And you can also, so if you go to the website, wamtheater with re.com, you can find out more about each of the plays. You can buy single and pass tickets online. And Talia Kingston, thank you so much for joining us today. I love this theater. I love its mission. And these are powerful works. You've got to see them. Thank you very much. And we should note that WAM stands for Where Arts and Activism Meet. Thank you so very much, Taya, and thank you, Donna Belcasas, for bringing this amazing theater company to our attention. We really appreciate both of you today. Thank Thanks. you. The beat goes on. The beat goes on. Drums keep pounding a rhythm to the brain. Summer adventures are where memories are made. Add some flavor to your Massachusetts summer by eating like a local. On a gorgeous summer day, head to one of dozens of pick-your-own-farms for the freshest blueberries, raspberries, or apples you can find. Or discover delectable ingredients to craft a homemade meal from one of Massachusetts' local specialty grocers. There are wonderful items to find from across the state. Need some inspiration? Map your fresh food adventure at eatlikealocalinma.org. Sponsored by Mass Farmers Markets. The Literacy Project is the place to go if you are an adult looking to improve your reading, writing, and math skills, or if you want help preparing for the high school equivalency exam and preparing for college. To find out about our free classes in Franklin and Hampshire counties, check us out online at literacyproject.org or call us in Northampton at 413-584-6755. If you want to learn, the Literacy Project is the place for you. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. W this is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. You know, the environment is, uh, it's just in the news every single day for all the wrong reasons. Tornadoes or uh, hurricanes or even the spread of uh epidemics into pandemics. We constantly are hearing about the dangers of the environment. And fortunately, we have uh, someone who's just written a book, An Altar to an Erupting Sun by Chuck Collins, who's an expert on economic inequality and environmental justice. And he joins us uh, here on Talk to Talk. I just want to point out that in one review, he's quoted this quote, quote, Collins not only talks to talk, but Walks the Walk. This is a worthwhile book to read, to digest, and to share. That was in Publishers Weekly. Welcome, Chuck Collins. Thank you for having me. It's great to be with you. It's a pleasure to have you. So uh, this book, Alter to Interrupting Sun, um, I understand that you're going to be doing a reading this Wednesday, the, uh, the 28th, I'm sorry. Yeah, the 28th at 6 o'clock at Amherst Books. Uh, you'll be following, and that's going to be a conversation with Sam Lovejoy, 
Um, and that's going to be followed on July 11th at 7 o'clock at Odyssey Bookshop. Uh, I wanted to ask you, tell us about the book, what motivated you to write it. Well, it is a work of fiction, and uh, I've been on this program before talking about books about money laundering and inequality, um, but this is a book that looks at, it's a, it's a Pioneer Valley book. It's set here largely in the valley. Uh, there are even maps of scenes in the valley, and it's about how this region prepares for climate disruption looking ahead over the next seven to ten years. Uh, but in order to prepare, it also looks back at some of the regional history, activist history, social movements that have shaped people. So it is a book about how we prepare for a disrupted future, a fictional, hopeful book on how we do that. So the principal character is a Ray Kelleher, a veteran environmental activist and a pioneer in the Death with Dignity movement. Could you tell us about the character and uh, how you wove this story around Ray? Yeah, Ray Kelleher is, um, she's kind of the life of the party. She is, uh, her, her partner Reggie describes her as a kind of a weaver of social movements and people. Um, and it's not a, she's a lifelong environmentalist. She's very much shaped by uh, the anti-nuclear movement. That's how she meets Sam Lovejoy, who uh, in 1973 topples a weather tower uh, to protest the construction of a power plant. So she's very rooted in nonviolent direct action. Um, but it's not a spoiler alert to say that she, at the end of her life, uh, facing a terminal illness, um, commits a shocking act, uh, taking her own life and the life of the CEO of a fossil fuel industry who holds responsible for delaying society's responses to climate change. So it starts with a, that shocking incident, but then kind of looks at the negative blowback from that, as well as the changes that happen in society, and ultimately asks the question, why why did she do this? Why did somebody rooted in the Pioneer Valley who knew Francis Crow, who knew Wally and Wadena Nelson, uh, nonviolent war tax resistors, people shaped in this community, uh, why would she do such a thing? And that's really the drama and the exploration in the book is how what forms Rake Kelleher. So Chuck Collins, you're the senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies and, of course, the National Priority Projects project here in Northampton is part of the Institute for Policy Studies. You're the director of the program on inequality and the common good. You have written some magnificent nonfiction books, including Born on Third Base and The Wealth Hoarders, and you're published widely in magazines and publications across the country. Why set this story up as fiction and where the events themselves, the toppling of the tower. Sam Lovejoy really did that. Tom Wesser, who appears in this book, really was his lawyer. Um, and I'm interested, why go to fiction to tell this story? Well, in some ways, fiction is a place to explore the future and offer up other uh, visions of how the future can unfold. Um, and I don't know about you, my, my experience is I often find fiction is kind of a gateway to wanting to learn more. Um, some of, you know, I've read a lot of novels that got me interested in history and about, you know, certain issues. 
And I hope that's the case in this story, that people will read Alter to an Erupting Sun and say, oh, I want to know more about these interesting people that really did exist in the Pioneer Valley, some of whom are still alive, thankfully, and and also kind of have a offer up the possibility. You know, there's a lot of future fiction that's kind of science fiction, zombie apocalypse and Blade Runner, Mad Max. That's not this story. This is a story of actually how people organize to build a healthy, resilient community to face the future and how they think differently about death and dying as well in the process. Well, I want to pursue that, Chuck Collins, in your book, Altered to Interrupting Sun. Um, I remember when I was in college, I think a lot of people probably had the same conversation. A group of us were sitting around a dinner table and we were hypothesizing if we saw Adolf Hitler now as a young man, as an art student in Vienna, would we ha- and we knew what he was going to become, should we murder him? Should we assassinate him? For those of us who don't believe in killing other people, is that a righteous thing to do? Well, here you have your principal character, Ray Kelleher. She's a veteran environmental activist. She's a pioneer in death with dignity. She wants to die, and she takes out with her the CEO of a fossil fuel company. I'd love to know what was going on in your mind when you had that debate. Should she become a killer at the same time she is ending her own pain? Well, l- like the conversation you had, uh, Ray uh, was steep is steeped in the writings of Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German pacifist and theologian who uh, participated in a plot to assassinate Hitler and was, you know, that failed and was executed for that. So she is looking at the current climate change situation. She's looking at the power of the fossil fuel industry to kind of capture our political system. And she thinks this is a Bonhoeffer moment. And I don't personally advocate this. Actually, I show uh, pretty, I think, convincingly how negative the consequences are of Ray's uh, shocking action, that she's she commits a murder and that has huge blowback and leads to the criminalization of dissent. And it has a lot of adverse impacts on the social movements and people that she loves and care about. So, but it's that wrestling in the same way you were wrestling with that question and which Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrestled with that question. Uh, Ray Kelleher is saying, how do we stop the fossil fuel industry that seems to be committed to running out the clock and blocking alternatives right up to this very moment that we're all sitting here talking. Um, so it, it, it's, it's a rigorous attempt to debate nonviolence, not in a kind of, oh, let's not hurt one another. It's like, look, there's real evil in the form of some of these corporations. How do we deal with that? How do we face that? Understanding that it's a system, but it's a system where individuals have some responsibility. And the question which you just spoke to, for, for those who are not as old as Bill and I, for those who don't know Sam Lovejoy as Bill and I do, could you tell the Sam Lovejoy story in a nutshell about the tower and then explain why that might be interesting to your character, Ray Kelleher? Well, the, the scene is, the fictional scene is in 1973. Uh, Ray Kelleher drops out of college and she goes to live at the Montague farm. And that's where Sam Lovejoy lived. lived in a, and the Montague farm was a hub of organizing against a nuclear power plant that was being proposed for Montague, Massachusetts. 
Um, it's hard to imagine the Montague Plains having a nuclear power plant, but that was in the in the cards. And Sam, uh, in real life, uh, an organic farmer living there, um, engaged in an act of, I guess you could call it uh, eco-sabotage. He clipped the cables on a weather tower that the the power industry had put up. Uh, that was needed in order meeting. to get. It was needed in order to get the permit to build the plant. It was, it was the year study on weather that needed to be done as part of uh, the planning to build the, the twin nukes in Montague. Sorry. No, great interjection. And uh, you know, so here's this tower that um, was going to help the nuclear power plant sort of fulfill their permit so they could build the plant. And he he said, I can't allow this to be built. Uh, I have to act on behalf of those who can't act, the children in our community and others. And so he clipped the cable and promptly turned himself into the police and, and pled, pled uh, you know, not guilty to charges of destruction of property. And he was tried in Franklin County and Howard Zinn came and testified and experts against nuclear power and ultimately was acquitted on a technicality. But Ray Kelleher, my fictional character, is there for the whole experience. She is watching this happen and for her as a 19, 20, 21 year old, it was a very formative experience, seeing the power of an individual taking action, breaking the law when they felt it was necessary, um, and, and you know, making a principled uh, opposition. So that was really uh, formative for Ray in her early 20s. So Chuck Collins, a lot of people, a lot of characters in this book are real people. A lot of the events that happened really happened. And I would be interested to know whether Ray is based on somebody real. Ray is a completely fictionalized character. She's sort of a composite of a lot of uh, inspiring people I've met. But, but she's not any one person, um, and that's important. And there are a lot of other fictional characters. But it was fun to have Ray show up. Uh, t t Tim Christopher, an activist, uh, described Ray as sort of a activist Forrest Gump uh, <laughs> intersecting with Diedrich Bonhoeffer. So she shows up in some interesting places. Uh, she meets uh, Brian Wilson, who, not, not the singer of the Beach Boys, but Brian Wilson, who was an anti-war activist, a Vietnam vet, who was also very in, you know, involved in preventing U.S. invasion of Nicaragua in the in the 1980s. So she's formed by real people. Uh, and and uh, and that's part of what I wanted to show is how social movements and people and books and ideas form each of us, uh, ultimately, in how the actions we take or don't take. Chuck, I'd like to know, and I'm, I don't mean to uh, uh, have a spoiler alert from question I'm sure you'll be discussing when you're at Amherst Books. That will be on Wednesday, the 28th, and the, and the Odyssey on July 11th. We should note that Sam Lovejoy will be with Chuck Collins at Amherst Books on Wednesday, the 28th. Alter to an Erupting Sun. What does the title mean? Well, the altar is like a remembrance altar. Um, you know, in the Celtic tradition, Samhain, which I'm familiar with, or Day of the Dead, people know about Mexican Day of the Dead and the whole importance of building a altar of remembrance to honor those who've come before. And for me, this book is an altar. It's a fictional altar commemorating uh, real people, real elders, 
the, the, the lives that they may, contributed to making the world a better place. The erupting sun is the climate disruption. It's also the explosive act that the book begins with. But it's the fact that we are living on a planet where we are facing an, an erupting, uh, disrupting uh, ecological change. And we have to sort of figure out how to face that. So it's really, a, a, but ultimately it's a book about remembrance and celebration of people's witness and lives. We are speaking with Chuck Collins about his new book, The Altar to an Erupting Sun. He will be uh, in conversation at Amherst Books this Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, June 28th at 6 o'clock in a conversation with Sam Lovejoy, a character in his book. When we come back, I want to ask Chuck a little bit more about the book we have learned without uh, uh, a spoiler, um, that there is, the main principal character is going to engage in a shocking suicide murder, suicide to uh, die with dignity when she's facing a terminal illness, and a murder taking the life of a fossil fuel company CEO for his complicity in uh, the climate crisis. And, and then Ray's friends and families are going to gather at a Vermont farm and try to understand, discuss her violent exit and the social transformations that are triggered by her act. I want to ask Chuck more about his views about that issue of dying, but on the way out, doing something that might help the planet. We'll be right back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Introducing You Choose Rewards, the free debit card rewards program that rewards you every time you use your GSB Debit MasterCard. Just use your Greenfield Savings Bank Debit MasterCard to make purchases and you'll earn rewards points every time. You'll even earn You Choose Rewards with your mobile wallet, including Apple Pay, Google Pay, Samsung Pay, or PayPal, when you link your GSB Debit MasterCard. You Choose Rewards can be redeemed for dining, shopping, traveling, cashback, donations, and more. Just go to our website and Sign up for You Choose Rewards for your GSB Debit MasterCard. It's free. Not a GSB customer yet? Just stop in any of our offices or open a new GSB checking account online and you'll find out how rewarding banking locally with Greenfield Savings can be. Get a 1,000 You Choose Points bonus good for a $10 reward when you sign up during June at Greenfield Savings Bank. Member FDIC, member DIF, greenfieldsavings.com. See bank for details. 
At the Black Sheep in Amherst, they're still baking and cooking from scratch, just like they have for almost four decades. Did you put off a party or anniversary due to COVID? Let the Black Sheep Deli help you finally celebrate this summer. You deserve it. Treat your guests to their wonderful appetizers, entrees, baked goods, and luscious desserts. No need to do all the work yourself. Let the Black Sheep Deli help you make your party a success with less stress. The Black Sheep Deli, open seven days a week and still having fun with food since 1986. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are speaking with Chuck Collins. He is the author of Alter to an Erupting Sun. He will be at Amherst Books this coming Wednesday, the 28th at 6 o'clock, in a conversation with Sam Lovejoy, uh, one of the characters in Alter to an Erupting Sun. And before the break, I told Chuck I really wanted to talk more about uh, in in the wake of the suicide murder um, of uh, the protagonist in in this book, Ray Kelleher, um, she not only takes her own life, but she takes the life of a CEO of a fossil fuel company. And uh, apparently in the book, seven years later, friends and families gather at a Vermont farm to try to understand her violent exit, why she did, whether she should have done what she did. Uh, Chuck, I have to ask you your views about that issue. About how did that come? How did you relay that conversation, uh, and what goes on in your own psyche about those issues? Well, I do think what um, what Ray Kelleher does is wrong, I and I also think it's tactically and strategically a bad action. And that and and but there's a debate about that, and her. Partner, husband, Reggie, basically she get into a conversation with a couple other people about, well, what are the other options available to you? Could you engage in uh, other acts uh, that are, you know, could be more effective? How do you take on a system, not just individuals? So they really have it out. They really, they really talk about it. And I personally think we, you know, partly we're in this moment where the fossil fuel industry uh, a couple dozen major corporations are pretty much blocking humanity's ability to chart a different course. I mean, even as part of the budget deficit ceiling debate, you know, part of the cutting the deal was to allow a, a new gas pipeline at a time when obviously we shouldn't be building any new fossil fuel infrastructure. So I think we're going to see kind of an escalation of tactics and militancy. Uh, not only are we seeing right-wing violence, but we're going to see people engaging in direct action, nonviolent, respectful direct action, but also maybe taking their own lives or in, engaging in more eco-sabotage. Um, so I think all these, uh, this is a real debate that I'm trying to play out in a work of fiction, but it's a real debate that's happening now. What is it that we can do to stop this rogue industry? It's a real question. I'd appreciate your perspective, Chuck, on whether or not the violence from the right, uh, exemplified but not res not restricted to January sixth, is apt to engender violence from the left. I'm not sure because I think uh, you know the 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 progressive social movements are pretty steeped in understanding first of all that the state and the right sort of have this monopoly on violence 
and that uh, that the blowback, the negative blowback and repression, uh, whether you look at the history of the Black Panthers or the others, is uh, it destroys social movements. It undercuts healthy democratic social change movements. I think in this case, you know, seven years later, folks are gathering um, at 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 a birthday memorial rec- recognition of Ray and her kind of adopted daughter says, look, uh, I don't I don't agree with what Ray did, but what bold action will you take to address to save Mother Earth? You know, that's essentially what she's saying is what what will you what tactics, what practices? Um, you know, a year ago on Earth Day, uh, a, a, a man named Wynn Bruce self-amulated himself on the steps of the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. That's actually something that Ray Kelleher thinks about. She thinks about that. She knows about the history of Norman Morrison and the Vietnamese monks who, in opposition to the Vietnam War, did that act of witness. Um, and in the end, she, she says that's, that's not what she wants to do. Um, but she, but she understands that is a potential course of action. Uh, there's a new popular film out I saw at the Amherst Cinema called How to Blow Up a Pipeline, uh, which is a fictional film, but it's about eight people who come together to try to stop an oil pipeline in Texas. Um, you know, I think these are real present conversations that people are having, and we need to have a sort of language to talk about tactics and practice that that we currently don't have i still recall it was almost maybe yeah almost 20 years ago that a man during a press conference threw his shoe at then president george w bush and uh, during his trial he said i could never kill someone but how was i to sit there with him in front of me and do nothing it would have been wrong for me to do nothing i and i was i remember playing with that concept for quite a while in, in that regard, I'd, I'd like to ask you, Chuck, and following up on what Buzz said, one of the characters is Sam Lovejoy. One of the characters in this novel is Sam Lovejoy. Sam Lovejoy, of course, very much uh, a, a character but a lawyer and someone who has uh, continued his fight for environmental justice for decades and decades after he toppled the tower, after he was the defendant, after he was acquitted on the technicality all of that. I'm wondering whether Sam being in the book, being in the novel, is an example of someone who, whose life and whose commitment shows a path forward. I, I Absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, both some of the living and the, the people who are, are real historical figures in the novel are people who, who give their whole life. You know, they understand, like, this is a lifelong struggle. To, for uh, racial justice, for economic justice, for to save the earth. Um, you know, there was a, a, a gas pipeline project being proposed through the northern tier of Massachusetts, and Sam Lovejoy was there, you know, 50 years later, uh, opposing this new gas infrastructure that we we didn't need. And, and, and the people of Western Mass stopped that pipeline. Uh, in, in my novel, Alter to an Erupting Sun, I tell the story of the pipeline fight in uh, Boston, which lost. The pipeline was built, but in some ways the resistance there and the friendships between people in Western Mass and Eastern Mass helped prevent that Northern Tier pipeline, that Kinder 
Morgan Pipeline. So Sam is part of uh, a chain of people who have been paying attention and, and being thoughtfully engaged for decades. And I like to celebrate them uh, through this book. I think that's a great place to leave it. Let's celebrate them through this book. The book is an altar, is altar to an erupting sun. It is by Chuck Collins, the expert on economic inequality and environmental justice. He will be speaking this coming Wednesday at Amherst Books in a conversation with Sam Lovejoy at 6 o'clock. And mark it on your calendars. He'll also be at the Odyssey Bookshop talking about his book, uh, in South Hadley on Tuesday, July 11th at 7 o'clock. Chuck, thank you so much for writing this book. Thank you so much for sharing with us today, and good luck with the book. Thank, thank you, Buzz. Thank you, Bill. We are going to be back talking with Amherst Town Manager Paul Bachelman right after this. Stay with us. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The investigation into alleged mistreatment of trans students at Amherst Regional Middle School is ongoing. The school committee met earlier this week to give an update on the Title IX complaint and investigation into actions by middle school counselors earlier this year. The committee voted to release a statement affirming their commitment to LGBTQA students and the community. The statement comes as Superintendent Michael Morris is on medical leave, with Douglas Slaughter serving as temporary superintendent. Dorian Cunningham, the Assistant Superintendent of Diversity, Equity, and Human Resources, who led the hiring process for the counselors, was placed on leave. Investigations are expected to be completed by the end of August. Civilians will now be allowed to help monitor traffic during construction in East Hampton. DPW Director Greg Nettleman spoke at Wednesday's City Council meeting, saying work has had to be delayed or rescheduled, due to a shortage of police officers available to direct traffic. Police Chief Robert Alberti drafted an ordinance which was approved by council that provides a job description of the role, which includes directing vehicular and pedestrian traffic through construction zones, reporting disobedient drivers, and answering motorist questions. Mayor Nicola Chappelle said the ordinance makes good sense for public safety and project management. The UPS store on Pleasant Street in Northampton got a surprise yesterday afternoon when a vehicle drove into the building, smashing out a window. The incident happened shortly after noon. No injuries or significant damage was reported, but customers who needed services inside the store were directed to the Amherst location. Good Friday morning. I'm 20 News Storm Team Meteorologist Chris Pizak. It's going to be seeing the chance for some spot pop-up showers and even a rumble of thunder as we go through late this morning and into the afternoon. High temperatures getting into the 80s for today. We'll stay up to date with the latest forecast on 101.5 WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at $80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. Every day, financial ads claiming to be different from the competition. Are they? 
I'm Francis Rayum, the money doctor, and I'm about to make a bold statement. I believe the thing to focus on isn't their uniqueness, it's yours. No one has the same financial situation or needs as you, and no one can help us help you better than you. But the truth is, when it comes to managing money, most of us are not as successful as we'd like to be. No matter how focused we are, it's almost impossible to separate emotion, and being in a relationship can further compound the issue. That's why I developed Hug Your Money. Financial coaching, coupled with online software and tools to empower you to manage money wisely. We guide you every step of the way to resolve immediate issues and plan for your financial future with modeling scenarios. So whether it's debt, budget, retirement planning, or a financial crisis, having a Hug Coach in your corner is like having a new best financial friend. Hug Your Money is as unique as you are. In fact, it's patented. Visit HugYourMoney.com. Did you know that you can prevent domestic and sexual violence? You can say something. We all can say something. Together, we can do so much. Say Something is the domestic and sexual violence prevention program at Safe Passage. Join a prevention lab to build your skills and find opportunities to say something to prevent violence. Join us and help make your community safe and healthy for everyone. Get more information or sign up for a prevention lab at saysomethingnow.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back. We have a very special guest with us that I've been wanting to have on the show for quite a time. He is the town manager of Amherst, Paul Bachelman. Hello, Paul. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing well. And his colleague, Brianna Sunrid, is with us. Hi, Brianna. Hi, everybody. And what is your title? So I'm the director of communications and civic innovation for the town of Amherst. Director I work of communi- closely with Paul. Communications and civic innovation. I love it. That's great. So, Paul, we uh, were talking. Uh, there is a home rule petition with the legislature. Mindy Dom is, is offering it. Um, and it's about voting rights. Mm-hmm. It's about Amherst and uh, who gets to vote. Could you tell us a little bit about that? And who gets to vote specifically in municipal elections? Right. So right. the town has put this forward many times. It's, it's in terms of both um, about having people um, who are are undocumented or, or do not have do not qualify for voting rights normally, and we want to have this be applied just to the town of Amherst and have it be for anybody who lives in the town of Amherst to be able to vote on the kind of municipal government issues that we have in front of us. Um, and so, it's home rule. These things hardly ever get through the legislature. We're hoping this one will. Um, and is it just for local issues that involve the town of Amherst, or is it also for the people who represent people in the town of Amherst? So it'll be for all local elections, which would be for town council, school committee, library trustees, plus any issues, uh, financial issues that come before the people. And how did this issue bubble up, and where where's the city, the town council, and you? Uh, we're going to talk about what your sure. what your job is and what the structure in Amherst is. But uh, how did this bubble up, this voting issue? You know, it has come up in the past during the town meeting days, and has, it comes up periodically with the town. It's, uh, it's something that's so obvious to everyone in Amherst. It's just sort of un, we don't understand why we aren't allowed to pick the people we want to have vote for our local things at the local level, except that we need the state to approve that. Well, I'd be interested to know if there is any opposition to this in Amherst, because there is 
opposition in the legislature, I think because of concern about precedent, what this would mean for other municipalities. So speak to that issue of, I guess the question writ large is, we hear uh, uh, humorously stated sometimes about the People's Republic of Amherst, but you know, is Amherst really out of line with the rest of the state, or is uh, Amherst an outlier, or is Amherst really representative of a burgeoning movement? I'd appreciate your thoughts about that. Yeah, so Amherst, um, beyond the People's Republic of Amherst, it's more accurate to say Amherst where only the H is silent. So we have that kind of um, approach to everything, um, and we are always on the cutting edge of a lot of things. So, so I won't speak for the rest of the state. It does make sense for our community. Our elected officials have said so, and that's why we're pushing this forward. Well, I do want to talk about Amherst and its structure of government. You are the town manager. Yes. You are the chief executive officer. Yes. And yet, contrary to what I learned in fourth grade civics, Brianna, <laughs> um, you answer to the town council. Can you explain how sure. that works? So if we go back to your civics class, there is the legislative function and the executive function. Separate but equal, we used yes. to say. Yes. So, And then there's the judiciary, which is controlled by the state. So our former form of government, we had a representative town meeting, which was the legislature. And then we had the executive. I just want to interrupt, as yeah. opposed to an open town meeting where the actual citizens sit as the legislature, a representative town meeting, the people elect someone to represent them in right. their precinct or... Uh, district to represent them in an open meeting conversation. Yeah, and there were 240 members of the representative town meeting. And then there was the executive, which was the select board and the town manager. Amherst has had a town manager form of government since the 1950s. It's pretty normal in our town to have a town manager. Northampton, on the other hand, has a council mayor form of government. So they have a council, and then the mayor is elected separately. And there are different models of government that every city and town can have. And so in our, when we had our charter change, what the town chose was a council to, to, to take the legislative function on and then to create and have the town manager take on the duties that the select board and town manager had previously shared. Some of the duties of the select board went to the town council. Uh, so it's now instead of, so we have a council manager form of government, government which is the most common form of government in America. Or, or else you have a council mayor form of government. And the mayors sometimes are elected um, directly. Uh, Worcester and Cambridge, they elect the council, and then from the council, they the council elects a mayor. Our council elects a president of the council who is the who chairs the committees and is the spokesperson, Lynn Griesmer, who you may have had. And she's been on the show several times. How many cities, uh, municipalities in Massachusetts have a town manager council structure? Mm, I don't know off the top. So, so there's 51 cities uh, in Massachusetts. and I think it's around a dozen. Yeah. That's Brianna Sinner. See, she is the uh, director of communications. <laughs> so, so Worcester. <laughs> civic engagement. Yes. Worcester, Barnstable, Cambridge, Lowell all have managers. Could go. you go back to Buzz's question for one second? Mm -hmm. In Amherst, there is an elected council. Yes. That's the legislature. Mm -hmm. You are the town manager. Mm -hmm. You work for the council, don't you? I serve at the pleasure of the council. Yes. I was trying to, yeah, that's, that was stated much better than I, than I put it. Where's the executive in all of this? So the executive in the charter, the town manager has certain functions that are, are established by the charter. So, you know, the ability to <clears throat> set the budget, 
to hire and fire all staff, um, to manage all the legal aspects of the town. So those are all the things that um, that the manager in the charter has under its under its jurisdiction. But if the legislature, the town council, doesn't let's let's not direct this mm-hmm. personally at you, but if the town council doesn't like what the town manager is doing or a decision that they have made, the town council can uh, how to put this uh, fire the town manager. Sure, yes? just just like a school superintendent could be fired by the school committee. Yeah. So it's not exactly uh, a co-equal branch of government. Well, it has the idea behind the council. I don't. I don't mean to read sure. the, the entire charter debate again, but I just think it'd be interesting right. for people to see. It's a very. It's a different form of government. It it is different, and the reason. So, the town manager, the, the council can only um, do things within its purview, right? It can't so um, interfere with um, hiring decisions that are outside of what they're allowed to do. Um, but they certainly set policy for the town manager. They set financial goals for the town manager. The elected officials are doing that. There isn't a conflict between an elected mayor and elected council. You know, we are more unified in our operations, and that's one of the advantages. And also for, you know, running a nearly $100 million operation isn't, you know, I'm a firm believer. Not, of, for, the, not for the faint of heart. <laughs> not for the faint of heart. But also I'm a firm believer in the council manager form of government because you're hiring a professional to come in who has worked on you know, contracting before, worked with unions before. And so they hire someone based on their professional competence to come in and do the job of managing the community. That's why it's called town manager. Um, and I actually read some of the uh, minutes um, where you proposed a 93 plus million dollar budget mm-hmm. and the conversation that the town council had based on your bud- your budget proposal, right? You didn't work with the council to develop that budget c- proposal? So we have a very sophisticated way of doing it in Amherst, which is very involved. But in November, the council sets financial guidelines. They say, here's the things that we want you to prioritize. Here's how, how much we want to start to tax ourselves. They also set goals for the town manager. So they say, Paul, here are the things we want you to accomplish in the coming year. Here, every, every year you get a Every year, every year. And then we... I al- saw that. It's like 13 pages of expectations. Well, yes. <laughs> but, you know, we align... We're really working hard to align our goal-setting structure with the, the, the policies of the council, with the um, tasks being assigned to the town manager, what, what, the, what the, we want the town manager. And then we align that with our, the budget that I present to the council and with what I communicate to our staff. And Brianna works really hard on this in terms of communicating with our staff about what we want to accomplish aligned with what the council has established in broad terms. I want to change the subject a little bit, and I'm not sure whether I should ask it to you, Paul Bachelman, town manager of Amherst, or to Brianna Sunrid, who is the communications director and civic engagement uh, director for the town of Amherst. But I'm interested in Cress. Cress is your... Um, Community Responders for Equity. Safety uh, and Service. Safety and Service. Thank you very much. I think Earl Miller is, I think, the director, and we had him on the show when when it first launched. And could you tell listeners what CRESS is and then update us on how it's doing? Sure. So our Community Responders, for short, we'll we'll stick with Community Responders. Uh, We're actually just coming up on a year of them being kind of out in the field, um, we're almost at that one-year anniversary, but it really came out of a process that was informed by community, what the community was looking for, what they were asking for. Um, so lay it out for us. In the wake of George Floyd, 
stuff happened. Correct. Um, and as Paul said earlier, Amherst, we're only the H is silent. We have um, very high participation rates. And we listen. We empower community members to share what they want to see with us. Um, and in this case, Paul took those steps to create uh, a 10-person department now to um, have that alternative dispatching model for people who didn't feel um, safe with the current options. So it isn't just the police department is responding. Certain types of calls get dispatched to CRESS as an alternative to just having police respond to them. Is that right? Yeah. So, and I think we this the concept of CRESS is is evolving. You know, we're learning a lot, and we're every there are lots of places in the country doing this. Uh, we're in the conversation. We're 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 involved with Harvard um, Kennedy School of Government is one of their. Um, we're in one of the cohorts where they're sharing best practices. We're, we're in, in concepts of it. You know, we, we had the Community Safety Working Group, which recommended this, had a certain concept of it. It has evolved over time as, people, as we start to get boots on the ground and understand what works. So we don't call it alternative responders because they're responders. They're not alternative responders. We call it an, we're starting to say alternative dispatch, you know, like an, a third leg of, you know, we have police, we have police, we have fire EMS, and we have community responders, Cress. Um, and we look at that as three legs of our public safety response and, and to have the right tool for the right response. Is this, is this dispatch that decides who is – someone dials 911. There's not a separate number for Cress. Someone dials 911. There's an emergency. Is it up to dispatch to decide, do I dispatch the police? Do I dispatch someone from Cress? Tell us about that. Yeah, so we have not activated dispatch on this yet. We are working through pretty diligently – what calls exactly will go to Cress? Um, and you know, we've have look at we've looked at certain call types. We need to train our um, dispatchers, who are really highly qualified people, and they need to be able to be, feel confident that they're they're sending the right asset to the need at the time. Cress does have a direct n- number. People know it. People are calling it directly because they know that. Press can respond in a, in a different way than police can or fire can. Or My ambulance. son has a history of mental health. He's outside screaming. Might not be police at the exactly. And and Cress has, brings a different set of tools. They're they're unarmed. Um, they um, can come in. We've had some of the examples. If you can bring Earl back, you know we have hoarding situations where police can be there and sort of intervene. But then in a couple of minutes, you know they have to be moving on to the next call. Press can literally spend four or five hours with that family to help ma- manage the situation, bring other sources to the to the table. It's, it's such a great innovation. Concept. What's the, what's what's the number? I mean, I, I'm moved to learn that people in Amherst know the number, but I think that in times of crisis, people reach for a phone and dial nine one one. So, help me understand how that works. We, we still want people in a time of crisis to call nine one one, and you know, people who people are. Um, come into Crest all the time, physically come into their, their offices because they have longer needs. They might need help uh, securing benefits or something like that. And our Crest responders are, are aimed to help a whole re- array of, of things that they need. This is Amherst Friday on Talk the Talk. We're talking with Town Manager Paul Bachman. We talked to Representative Mindy Dumm. Uh, and we are talking to Communications Director and Civic Engagement Director Brianna Sunrid. We're going to be back with Brianna and with Paul right after this. Keep talking Amherst. Yes, we see. 
This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5, 1400, and 1240. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP. At Greenfield Cooperative Bank, it pays to get pre-approved. If you're looking to buy a home, right now is the perfect time to save up to $1,250 on your mortgage closing costs. We make it easy to apply online at bestlocalbank.com or at any of our branch locations. Our local, experienced mortgage team is happy to walk you through the process so you can get in your new home as quickly and as easily as possible. So apply online or come see us in person and receive a $750 closing credit plus an additional $500 when we pre-approve you. Close by September 30th be a new first-time mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan, subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. Where's the nearest farm stand? On the Local Hero website, you can search and find out. There are 142 Local Hero farm stands listed. I bet there's one pretty close to you. Get your beef for grilling, corn picked fresh this morning, buy eggs where you can see chickens pecking. Where's the nearest Local Hero farm stand? There's one close by. Check the Local Hero Guide at CISA's website, buylocalfood.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And this is an Amherst Friday on Talk the Talk. We're here with Town Manager Paul Bachelman and with Town Communications Director Brianna Sunrid. And I wanted to go back to you, Paul. I wanted to ask you, there's a lot of talk about Amherst as a destination, Mm -hmm. about new investment, about new commercial activity in Amherst. Um, What do you have to say about that? Amherst is a destination for sure. I mean, there's so much happening. Our vacancy rate downtown is at 4%. It's very lively. We have a lot of new restaurants that are um, in operations and a lot of new ones opening. I mean, we've got the, um, the, the Amherst... Burger Company, that's open and running for business where you can get uh, flavors, ice cream, beer, and burgers. By the way, <laughs> burgers since, made, since made from cows, those kind of burgers. <laughs> we're talking about Amherst, Massachusetts, we are. aren't we? We get a veggie burger there. <laughs> <laughs> since the Drake opened, that wonderful performing arts venue, it's costing me a fortune, Paul. Are you going to it? <laughs> going there and I'm eating somewhere yeah. and it's great. That's That's been a difference maker for the downtown. For many years, the town needed a downtown performance venue. You know, and so the nonprofit downtown Amherst Foundation came, raised funds. We contributed ARPA funds, and we got this place open, and it's been really um, tremendous in what they've added to the um, to the downtown area. Lots of new restaurants coming online. Amherst Oyster Bar coming up, coming open soon. Uh, if you haven't been to Protocol, you know there's um, if you can find um, the um, the archives the archives it's a it's a you know one of these places that you have to know about to find it strange business model but it's a speakeasy so um 
but there's a lot lots of places in downtown that for a restaurant scene. I want to go back just before we leave it, um, because we were talking during the break, break about Cress mm-hmm. and uh, alternative responses to policing. Uh, I understand Cress is a responder, not an alternative responder. But you told me something I didn't know, which is that members of that department of Cress walk a beat. Tell us about that, because that's news to me. Sure. So um, what they have. So again, this is a work in progress. One of the things that they do is they they walk through downtown and you know, talk to people. They appear people who live on the streets. They connect with them, see what their needs are. Um, they'll respond to people when someone says, you know, there's someone sleeping in the bank vestibule or something like that. They might be able to respond to that. Um, you know, so they're and they, it's a um, we want them out on the streets and connecting with people and building relationships, which is really important. I think that there's a fundamental difference between what. Uh, Northampton is doing and what Amherst is doing. It's going to be a, a fascinating PhD someday because we've planted ours in the public safety department. Uh, Northampton planted theirs in the public health department. Both are addressing the same issues. And Greenfield also has. Yes. But it, but in, in terms of their, the approach. And Greenfield's in the police department. Right? So ours is not in the police department. That's an important, that's a difference thing that most of the ones in the country are subsets of the police department. We created a separate department. So, but it's in the public safety uh, part of our, which includes fire, EMS, police, and now CRESS. It, it's a fascinating and important innovation uh, that we all welcome, and we hope that these experiments uh, work out well. I wanted to ask you, uh, Brianna Sunreed, um, there is a call to action for a July 4th event. What's, what is that about? Sure. I'm happy to talk about that a little bit. Amherst has a history of a very large Independence Day celebration, which, you know, was impacted by COVID. But we're coming back strong this year. Um, Lots of communities, surrounding communities come every year to our big fireworks display. So that'll be Saturday, July 1st. So uh, starting at 5 p.m. at McGurk Stadium, UMass Amherst, fireworks, food trucks, community. Um, And just before you head to that, come down to downtown Amherst and kind of see some of the things Paul was just talking about our downtown vibrancy, farmer's market. So if you need something for next weekend, July 1st, come down and see us in Amherst. Okay. Anything new on the library in one minute? So library. uh, Jones Library. Jones Library, which is a major renovation of the one of the largest uh, circulation libraries in Western Massachusetts. Um, Huge impact by Senator Comerford and, and Rep. Dom for getting additional funds from the Mass Board of Library Commissioners. Which are um, needed because it was an overrun. It was, an, well, because prices have skyrocketed. Right. Uh, we have um, estimates that have come in that are much lower than we had previously worried about because we were, we were, people were projecting quite big inflation rates for construction. They're, they're starting to come down, and we're seeing that in, in evidence in our pricing. Um, also, uh, uh, Congressman Govern got a significant grant from the um, NEH for the library. So that project is moving forward. Um, schools moving forward as well. You know, if the, one other thing is there's a, there's a North Amherst library is being um, renovated right now. It's a jewel box, privately funded by a generous donor. Drive by it in North Amherst. It's in the center of it. Amherst is a hopping place these days. I want to thank you so much, Town Manager Paul Bachelman. I'm, I'm going to be nagging you to come back on the show. Anytime. Oh, that's good. You're going to regret that you I'm said on, that. I'm on record. <laughs> okay, it's great. Just like Mayor's Monday, we want to have Town Manager 
uh, coming on periodically. Thank you, uh, Brianna, for being with us. And thank all of you for joining us on Talk the Talk. And of course, we all should walk the walk. Get takeout, save 30%. Get candles or hit the links, save 30%. Dog grooming, outdoor recreation, burritos, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were going to buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. Here's a slice of advice about pizza boxes. It's okay to recycle the entire pizza box as long as it's empty. For a long time, creasy boxes were assumed to cause recycling problems, but a new study proved they don't. It's time to capture the three billion pizza boxes used annually in the U.S. Visit RecycleSmartMA.org to learn more about what can and can't get recycled. After you've enjoyed tonight's pizza, turn the box inside out, discard what falls out, and recycle the rest. Brought to you by the Northampton DPW. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's